passage in the Old Testament where you might say, what does God expect from me? There is a favored passage that people often go to. It's Micah 6, 8. It gives a condition. In fact, there was a question asked, what does God want? Does he want my burnt offerings? Does he want uh, so many thousand vats of oil? Does he want my firstborn? What does God want? And the prophet sort of responds in a little terse way, saying, you know, O man, what is good. You know what the Lord requires. And what is that but to do justice and to love loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to talk a little bit about this verse a little later on in our time together this morning, but I want to bring it to your attention because I think it's verses like this that James has in mind along with Proverbs when he writes the letter that we're studying right now, James, at the end of the New Testament. He has verses like this in mind, and of course the wisdom section uh, in Proverbs, specifically chapters 1 through 9, and also the teachings of his brother, which are called the Sermon on the Mount. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and I have no question that he was there to hear the Sermon on the Mount, knew the teachings of the Lord, because you can hear them come out in this letter that he is now writing. Now, at the time that Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, James and the rest of his family didn't understand him being the Son of God, didn't understand him being the Messiah. In fact, uh, they, they thought the opposite. But it was after his death and his resurrection that James understood what Je who Jesus is and his words and the power that he had. So you can hear the, the reflection of them throughout the text. Now, if we're walking through, which we are, verse by verse through the book of James, you'll notice that we're in chapter 2. Last week, we talked about verse 1, and we went down to verse 12 and a couple of others. Uh, I'm going to just give the part 2 of this lesson because it's so important specifically uh, for what we're dealing with these days. Here's what James is saying. My brothers, and that's a, that's a term saying to those of us who are Christian, he's talking to us, we are part of the faith family. Uh, we can make it a little bit more uh, open and holistic today to say my brothers and sisters, people in the family of God. It was common for them to say my brothers for the collective nature of those who are saints of God. He's saying to those who are in Christ Jesus, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And what we have been talking about in chapter 1 and now into chapter 2, and we will continue throughout the whole book, is that James is talking about our life that has been redeemed by Christ through His Word. In fact, we just really elevated that idea from chapter 1 that God in His grace has given us a gift, and the gift is His implanted Word. And that Word brings our salvation, is our transformation. And so he's saying, live your life. These all 12 subjects are what are referred to throughout the book of James. Live out the expression of your life because you have been redeemed by the word of God and you have the implanted word of God where other New Testament writers are trying to help people to come to conclusion about who Jesus is and about the salvation he offers James is not doing that James is saying since you are saved since you have the implanted word of God since you have been redeemed your life ought to demonstrate this so he's telling us to live out the authentic life that we have in Jesus Christ and of course, if he's calling for us to show no partiality, he's recognizing as well that God doesn't show partiality. In fact, we talked last week about all these sins that are 
pretty prevailing these days, including racism, which is the notion of somebody's race being superior to someone else's race, and we act out in that kind of false way of thinking. We talked about discrimination, which is we uh, act or say things in some way against someone because they are different from us. We view them as different, so we just discriminate uh, against them. And we talked about the, the very root of it all is bias or partiality, which is actually showing favor of one person over another. Uh, the way James gives illustration to that, which I'm not covering that in these two lessons, honestly, there's just not a time for us to do it. And I didn't think you'd come back for a part three of this. But what James says is the economic issue that he saw in the church as being a real bias issue. That you have a rich man who comes with his gold rings and his nice clothes, and you say to him, oh, come sit in this favored seat. And then you have a poor man who is obviously poor who comes in, and he says, oh, no, you go sit over there, or you come sit down at my feet. And James is saying that shouldn't be. Number one, God favors the poor. He, he goes after the poor, the poor in spirit who had the kingdom of God. So that God has positioned himself in that way. Jesus himself left glory and the riches of heaven and came to live among us as an impoverished one without uh, belongings, without a home. It's very intentional. So he said, that doesn't make sense that you would go against what God has shown to love. And it doesn't make sense because it's the rich people who really put their thumb and press down on you, not the poor people. Why would you favor the people who actually reject you and actually bring hurt into your life so he says it's not even rational what you're doing so he's saying show no partiality and you show no partiality because you're a person of faith and you recognize that God has not been biased against you God has not been discriminatory against you in fact God has done the opposite he came to you while you were yet a sinner so he's telling us show no partiality because God shows no partiality. You can't get more clear than Romans 2.11, which just simply says God shows no partiality. So we recognize this in the life of Christ and that he lived gloriously and perfectly righteous among all people. He didn't just do that to a select few. Now he's, he's offering the gospel first to the Jewish people. It was, it was prophesied to be that way and they were going to be the torch bearers of the gospel throughout the world they rejected him and thereby rejected his gospel that was the plan but he knew all along that the gospel was for all people and he lived his life gloriously and perfectly among all people in fact i won't uh, bog down in this but we know these things to be true we talked about it a little bit last week jesus showed no discrimination in fact he broke down all racial walls and all racial barriers it doesn't mean that he did away with race but he did away with the magnitude of it being a divider he says for as many of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ you've been immersed into christ and by his grace he is immersed into you you've become one with him him with you you've put on christ and thereby things have changed now because we are one in christ there's neither jew nor greek there's neither slave nor free there's no male and female for you're all one in christ jesus that doesn't mean that you're all androgynous <laughs> that you stop being male and female that's not what he's saying at all 
He's saying male and female are now one in Christ. It doesn't mean that your Jewish heritage or even your heritage that you have in the Gentile world has changed. That's not the case. The fact is that it's not the, the most prominent feature in your life anymore. It's that you are in Christ. You're one in Christ. We're a, we're a new creation in Him and we're a new race in Him. It doesn't negate for some of them the fact that they were still enslaved or some of them were free. The fact is they are all one in Christ. And that's the big deal, that Jesus has showed no discrimination and he was breaking down the barriers and the walls that people put up. But then look at this next point as well in God showing no partiality. Jesus saw everyone as fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. Uh, he was very much part of, as the Trinity would be in creation, and all of us are made in his image. It doesn't matter the skin color. It doesn't matter the tongue that you speak. It doesn't matter the origin, the national origin for which you come. Jesus sees you as fearfully and wonderfully made, and you're made in his image. And then he understood the uniqueness of all people. And those unique features that are given to all people are intentionally for his glory. All things are for him, by him, for his glory. So when you and I see skin colors that are different from our own, and when you hear dialects that are different from our own, when you have heritage that is different from your own, you might see that as being unique and something to be a dividing, but Jesus is saying, no, no, that uniqueness is for my glory. I, I've done that intentionally. And ultimately, it is for my glory. And then he seeks a relationship with all people. He's not subdividing and saying yes to some and no to others jesus is seeking relationship with all people in fact there's a pretty significant passage that's coming on the screen from first timothy chapter two it says first of all then i urge that supplication prayers intercession and thanksgiving be made for say it out loud all people and this is a section about you want peace in your world you want peace in your community you want peace in your life then this is where you start first of all pray Pray for all people. Ask for them, intercede for them, and be thankful for them. For all people. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, say it again, all people to be saved and to come to know the, the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for? Oh, you guys are great. All people. So Jesus has come for all people. And here's what he said. He's come from heaven as the righteous one. He's come to live among the unrighteous in the world, the holy living among the unholy, the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the righteous. Where did that happen? It happened on the cross with Jesus suspended between heaven and earth making the way for us who are unholy to actually be declared righteous, to have sins removed and righteousness put into us. That's what he was doing, and he was doing that for all people. So if you don't have the heart of God, then your heart is not towards all people. If you're subdividing, I'll be for most people, but not those people, then you don't have the heart of God. You're going in contradiction to where God has gone. And where has God gone? He has gone all the way to provide salvation for all people. And so the heart of God is clearly given to us. It's 
known to us. He chased after us while we were rebellious to him. And so Jesus saves us from judgment of sin and the bondage of sin, including racism, discrimination, partiality. And he demands that we live an authentic, faithful life, live out this life that is ours. And that's what he's saying in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what he's saying here is that as God has been merciful to you, be merciful to somebody else. If you have been shown mercy, then mercy will triumph over judgment. And that ought to be demonstrated in our life. If you have a problem showing mercy to somebody, your problem is not with that somebody. Your problem is with God, that you don't understand the significance of his mercy that was extended to you. If you've got a problem forgiving somebody, the, the problem is not with that situation and that person. The problem is between you and God, that you don't understand the magnitude of your sin that God gave forgiveness for. And the pain and the cost and the suffering for that forgiveness. Because when you understand the depth of your own sin and God's forgiveness of that, then you won't withhold forgiveness to anybody. And when you have a problem loving somebody, your problem is not with that individual. Your problem is understanding the depth of God's love. That's the reason why Paul told the church in, in Ephesians at Ephesus, he said, I want you to know the depth of the love of God. I'm praying that you would understand its height, its width, its depth to know it, to know the love of God. Because when we know the love of God, then we'll give God's love. So the national conversation right now is on racism, obviously. And the emotions and the rhetoric continue to heat up on both sides of the issue. But my friends, God's requirement for us who have been redeemed has not changed. It is unswayed, regardless of the circumstances around us. And while the fighting and the skirmishing and the positioning and the power struggle continues, you, you and I should be mindful of these four things. Number one is that every position in the world will be demoted. So there's a lot of struggle for positioning right now, a lot of vying for position for individuals to organizations. But I want us to be reminded that every position in the world will one day be demoted when the king of the universe sits on the throne and all of us understand the magnitude of his rule and reign. Every kingdom will crumble. Uh, we fight for kingdoms right now. We fight for position in the world regarding kingdoms and nations. But every kingdom will crumble except for one, the eternal kingdom of God. And we must remember that every dominance will be humbled those who are strong right now, those who are dominant right now, they will be humbled before God and everything and every person will be subject to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So don't be distracted from all that's happening. Don't be distracted for the positioning and the, and the, the manipulating that's going on. Christ is going to ultimately prove to be over all. And he will be victorious over all. So that being the case, you and I should live our lives according to the eternal kingdom of God and his word, making his message our mantra and our mission. Don't get sucked into somebody else's message. You've already been given a message, and that message is eternal. Don't be pulled into somebody's organization that elevates something that is counter to Christ. 
you have already been given a position it's called the eternal word of god and it doesn't change that's your platform that's where you stand and if you and i will stand on that we will not only be perfectly righteous before god but we will be righteous before others as well and you'll walk with great wisdom and with dignity and you will be justified by christ before the father so don't be distracted by the world's arguments right now I'm not suggesting that all those arguments are faulty, but I am saying this, that they are all second at best to Jesus. They are all second. Some of them are proclaiming positions that are absolutely counter to the Word of God, and you have no business signing on with them. Even a mere hashtag today positions you potentially against God and his word. And I'm just here to say to us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we already have a message. We stand on that message. And here's the message. Do justice, love loving kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's our message. That's what it's been for thousands of years, and that's what it is today. That's the way Jesus lived, and that's the way we should live as well. So according to God, we must do justice, do what's right. We're choosing not to do what's wrong. Instead, we are choosing to do what's right. Justice, by the way, is not earned. Justice is for every person without bias. It's not just that we discriminate or don't discriminate, but it's that we are unbiased applying justice to every person. And then we are loving loving kindness this is a hard word to translate it's hesed in the original language in the hebrew language of the old testament it's a word that we can't put with one word in the english language it, it means so much more it, it is this royal love it is a covenantal love it is a love that is pursued by god it's, it's one that uh, is merciful, gracious. I mean, it, it is power-packed as a word. And here's what he's saying. You ought to love loving kindness. Now, some might say, okay, I love God's loving kindness. And I would say, yes, we ought to love God's loving kindness. But it doesn't stop there. God has given his love to us that we might be lovers. First, that he would be loved by us he gives love to us and in our reflection of that we give him love he pours love in our heart that we might love other people so i think what he's saying here is you and i must love expressing loving kindness committed love chasing love a merciful love a love that that seeks for other people and then we must as well uh, just choose to walk humbly with god we walk with him because he has been merciful to us and he chose to be in relationship with us expressing his character of goodness to us so we walk with him and all of life's journeys every second of every day we are walking with god we're recognizing that we're walking with him and we must be consistently mindful of that now in doing so then we will fill the, the royal law of God by loving others. And here's what James is saying. Fulfilling that royal law of God by loving well is good. Now, obviously, I'm repeating these verses because they're just so important for us to know. So he says, show no partiality to us who are in the faith as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. Verse 8, if you 
really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well now let's zoom in for a moment on this idea of royal law what does that mean well to understand its meaning we got to go back to the ten commandments because that's the law the expression of the law and and here's somebody's rendition of what uh, moses might have looked like i don't know that that's the case but anyway it reminds us of the decalogue the ten commands that god has given to us the first four of which are directed about him and the last six of which are directed to other people we'll call them our neighbors i am the lord your god you shall have no other god before me and that's the way it starts right god says be be a worshiper of me and me only because i am the only god and he says don't ever make for yourself a graven image don't carve don't mold don't cast don't whittle don't do any of that don't try to make an image of me and don't take my name in vain when you take my name in vain you have offended the love that i have with you and for you and honor the sabbath and keep it holy those are the four things that god says in his law that are directed to our love for him so if you want to love god god says in his law those are the four things that you act in that's the way you express love and if you want to love others you want to love your neighbor then you honor your father and mother you don't commit murder you don't commit adultery you don't bear false witness against your neighbor and you don't covet those are the expressions of love for our neighbor now that's the way jesus understood it if you want to love god these four commandments are directed to you if you want to love neighbor these six are directed to you in fact one time jesus was asked among the ten which is the highest which is the most important remember what jesus said the most important this is sort of a summary form of it the most important is to love god with all of your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it the second most important is like it you ought to love your neighbor as you love yourself so what he's saying is that all the law and he includes the prophets words of the prophets too all of them are summarized in those two things you love god with all your heart soul mind and strength you love your neighbors yourself and you are obedient to the commands of god the problem is not only can we not do it well but we can't do it perfectly like he requires which identifies a need that we have and the need that we have is for somebody to rectify our life and sin because we don't love god with all of our heart soul mind and strength and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. somebody has to fix that and that somebody is not us it's jesus who is the justifier and the redeemer and the reconciler of sinful broken lives and so he postures himself from the heavenly throne to humble himself to come to earth living righteously without sin he perfectly loved god with all of his heart soul mind and strength and he loved every neighbor as he loved himself he was perfect in that but yet he who knew no sin took on sin that we might have his righteousness and that great transaction is a transaction of faith but what the law of god is doing is revealing the need for that redemption and now we have been saved if your faith is in christ you are saved what are you saved from you're saved from your sin and you're saved from the judgment of sin the death that is the judgment of sin and you're set free from the dominance of sin 
A great exchange took place. God said, let me have your sin. I'm going to put it on the cross on my son, and I'm going to, I'm going to destroy his life there. He will die with your sin, and then I will give you, by faith, I will give you his righteousness. But it's not just that we have his righteousness, it's that we have his right spirit living within us, the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us. So not only are we free from sin and the judgment of sin, we're free from the dominance of sin so that now we can actually live out the righteousness of Christ. We are empowered to do that. And so now you and I can love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's why James is saying, if you really want to fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This comes not by our diligence. It comes by the work of Christ. And we're doing well when we surrender to him. Now just follow along with me. It's in the handout. It'll be on the screens here. God takes the sin of partiality more seriously than most people. This is what we're dealing with in this passage of James. That God sees it as a big deal. In fact, if you look in verse 9 of chapter 2, it says, But if you show partiality, I've told you not to, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we have this idea that ah, certain sins are a big deal, certain sins are not a big deal. But what I want us to know is God takes the sin of partiality and he makes it a big deal. In fact, he says you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accounted, accountable for all of it. So racism, discrimination, partiality, they break God's law. And the law requires us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When we show partiality, we are not loving our neighbor. And the law is broken. People attempt to justify their sin of partiality or discrimination or racism by making, hoping to be somewhat less guilty before God. But my friends, our justifying of self does not negate God's holy requirement in life. They might say, well, you know, if I look back at past experiences, those experiences have been painful. And I just don't believe that people ought to be loved that have hurt me in the past. And so they make a blanket justification for their racism or their bias. Or they may proclaim, I can't help it, Randy. It's the way I was raised. I'm Southern, true Southern. It's just the way I was raised. I'm telling you, that does not justify your sin of racism, discrimination, or bias. God says that you are already counted as a trespasser. You are already convicted in your sin. Other people might say, I'm going to withhold my love for my neighbor for various reasons. It might be that those people are robbing me of my heritage right now, and they don't deserve my love. Or those people are with privilege and they don't need my love. Or those people are ruining and disrespecting my country. Or those people took my people out of our country. I mean, you could point the finger on and on and on, can't you? 
I'm not negating that those are not real issues and real pains. What I'm saying is, if you're pointing your finger trying to justify your sin, God is saying you are already convicted in your sin, in your trespasses. And you've got to deal with that. That's an eternal issue. The issues that we are struggling with as a country right now are temporary issues. They might last the duration of our country, but I'm telling you, our country is temporary. There is only one kingdom that will last forever, and it is not the United States of America. It's a kingdom that always has been and always will be, and its king is Jesus Christ. So you can point your fingers at other people's shortcomings while remaining in your sin, and you can understand why there is an eternal judgment that is coming against you one day, even as the debates are raging. Can I remind you that the debates that are raging right now, when you stand before the judgment of God, the debates that are raging right now will seem elementary at best and deeply convicting at worst. Convicting for all eternity. So when you stand before the eternal King of God, will today's contentious debates matter? Will they really matter? In light of eternity, the things that I fight for, the things that I wrangle for, the things that I'm stressing after are typically the things that God is not. And James is helping us to reset that loving God and loving people will matter on the first day of eternity with the new heaven and new earth. It will matter. And so today we must ask, Will our salvation claims be backed up with evidence that our lives are in Jesus Christ right now? And the evidence is I've acted justly and I've loved loving kindness and I've walked humbly with my God. Will it be evident? What James is proposing to us is the evidence is in our life. The redeemed life is evident by the lived life. Now, some might still say, well, I don't see the big deal, Randy favoritism, bias, whatever. It doesn't seem like that horrible of a deal, but in reality, it is a brazen sin because they understand that God shows no partiality, yet they themselves are partial. They understand in their own salvation that God came as a rescuer in the midst of their sin to reconcile what he did not wrong what they wrong, God came to reconcile. They recognize all that, that God has graciously provided salvation, that he came mercifully towards us. He came loving towards us while we were unloving, but yet they're unwilling to respond in the same way. And I think that's why James says it's a brazen sin. It's a deep, dark sin. Emphasizing the point, James is saying that bias, murder, and adultery are all in the same category, and they belong under God's conviction. Kent Hughes explains it this way. James sees the law as a seamless garment, which when ripped in one place tears the whole garment. It only takes one law broken to make us a law breaker. You might say, well, I'm not an adulterer. Or I'm not a murderer. It's just a little racism. It's just a little bias. It's just a little partiality. And what God is saying it doesn't matter what you've used to rip that part of the garment. The garment is ripped. If you break one law, the Code of Alabama or the federal government, then you are a lawbreaker. If you're convicted of one crime, you are a convict. And in the same way, you sin one sin, then you have broken it all. 
and you are deserving of God's eternal judgment. You've chosen your way over his way, the creator. So partiality is a, an unmerciful spirit that reveals weightier eternal soul issues. That's the reason why he's, I'm going to repeat it again, speak and act in those ways, knowing that you're going to be judged in the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What he's saying here at the end is that if God has been merciful to you, you ought to be merciful to others. And if the judgment of God is still upon you, then you will be judgmental to other people. But where you have been given mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And James is saying that ought to be expressed in your words and in your actions. In Christ, we've been set free. As I've already mentioned, we are free from condemnation and we're free from the dominion of sin. You and I have been empowered now to live radically different with God's mercy and love, forgiveness. The Apostle Paul and James communicate these truths in a similar way. I'll just show it to you on the screen as we're wrapping up here. Paul says that this way, you are called to freedom. James calls this the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh. Look what he says, though. Here's what you do. In this freedom, love and serve one another. James says it a little bit differently. He says, it's a royal law, which means you love your neighbor as yourself. If you've been saved, you've been placed in faith in Christ, then it ought to be demonstrated by your love. They're both saying the same thing, that this is all about love. I'm a fan of John Piper, and probably many of you are as well, as a former pa pastor in Minneapolis and author of many books. Here, here's what he says, the powerful results of what Paul and James are both communicating is that love is the natural fruit and the necessary evidence of being justified by faith. Love is the kind of law that governs us when we are free from condemnation by the blood and righteousness of Christ. And we will be judged under this law of liberty. Now listen to this. If we have not loved, we will perish. He's talking about an everlasting perishing there. Removed from the presence of God in a very literal place of hell. If we have not loved, we will perish because there will be no evidence that we are born again and justified by faith. It's the same words that James is saying. James is saying, if you are really a brother in Christ, it ought to be demonstrated in your life. Show no partiality. It's a big deal. You say, well, Randy, they're doing this and they're doing that. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. Show no partiality. You say, but what about this and what about that? I'm not talking about this and that. I'm saying here's what God requires of us. He's required it of thousands of years. It was evidence in Christ Jesus. He came to free us that we might live this way, do justice, love loving kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Pursue those things. And in doing so, you will demonstrate the redeemed life, the implanted word, and you will be a glorious light in the midst of darkness. A glorious light. Royal love is the prominent motive for us living without racism and bias. Just royal love. Love that is God-given and God-chosen for us. That's why James brings up the subject. That we 
we would be under judgment if we are going to be partial. So in the end, will God's word triumph over the culture? The culture is wanting to pull us in a direction. Will God's word triumph over that? The culture wants you to argue and make this point and fight and wrangle over this. Will God's word triumph over the culture? Will it be evident in your life individually? Will it be evident in your family? Will it be evident in this church that we will be people of the word? And that word, and the life of that word will be evident in our words and in our actions. That's what we're calling for. It's a radical, different perspective from the world. And that's okay, because we are not of this world. We're of the kingdom. And we recognize where we're going. Where we're going is to the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ought to live our life accordingly. When James got it, he really got it, didn't he? And we're grateful for it because he shares with us how to live life. Now let's pray together. Obviously, Lord, it's a struggle, and you knew it would be a struggle. It's the reason why you gave us such great, specific instruction to live our life differently than others in the world, to live our life as kingdom residents with a heart and mind and spirit and soul that has been transformed by Jesus. I pray the evidence of that would be so clear in the chaos of the world, let us be standing on Jesus Christ as a solid rock. When the discourse of the world is changing and swaying and the arguments are bold and loud, let us stay on point with the message that you have given us in the scriptures, in Jesus Christ. And where organizations and leaders try to pull our attention and our sway and our influence, let us be confident in the gospel message of Jesus and let it be our communicative force. Let it be the way in which we live. And I pray in the end people will come to know Jesus and they will surrender their lives to you and they will be transformed by your spirit. And I pray all this to the glory of the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.